Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Earlier this week, former Missouri State Senator Kurt Schaefer came out of political retirement to file for Missouri's third congressional district seat. The Columbia Republican served for eight years in the General Assembly's upper chamber, but lost decisively in 2016 in the attorney general primary to Republican Josh Hawley. Now Schaefer is banking on his name recognition as state senator and his geographic base to emerge out of a crowded primary to succeed retiring Congressman Blaine Luchtemeyer. Here's my conversation with former Senator Kurt Schaefer. Why did you decide to re-enter the electoral fray by filing to be uh, the next third congressional district representative? Because I think what's going on in the country right now is completely unacceptable. I think an open southern border which is causing fentanyl to pour into this country and kill our kids and destroy our cities. And then on top of that, you know, another story today about an undocumented uh, person who came into the country with no background check, arrested multiple times and let go, and then kills another child. So literally, not only is fentanyl coming across the border and killing our kids, we've got people coming across the border and killing our kids. And it's got to stop. And, you know, and, and Jason, I mean, you and I have known each other a long time. And from my days in the Senate, I'm known as somebody who doesn't just talk. I actually get things done. And I've got multiple things in my record that that show that. And I'm, I'm tired of people wanting to get elected to be nothing but political influencers online and not doing the job that actually needs to be done. I think that's why we see the problems we've got in Washington. And I'm tired of it. Well, you're very familiar with Congressman Luke DeMeyer's trajectory. He, he lost a statewide election in 2004, but then came back from the electoral grave, so to speak, to win in 2008. I mean, you shared an office with him, I think, during the general election, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, is there anything that you see in Blaine's trajectory that could correspond with what you're doing uh, right now? Well, first of all, I mean, I think Blaine's done a fantastic job. Um, I think losing him for the third congressional district is a blow to Missouri. Um, those are big shoes to fill. But again, I mean, Blaine accomplished a lot. He, you know, he was able to establish a lot of things, not just for the third congressional district, but for farmers and ranchers and other businesses in Missouri. And, you know, to lose him, we have to have somebody who has the ability to replace him and get those things done. And, and I think that is a good fit. I mean, I think I, I match well with Blaine in that respect. Um, again, we, we, we don't need talkers. We need doers. So before I ask you about specific issues, I kind of want you to preemptively respond to two things that I'm sure are going to be thrown against you, especially if you gather a lot of momentum. The first is they're going to point to lots of things you said specifically in 2008 or a number of votes that you made are a number of endorsements you got in 2012, and they're going to be like, Kurt Schaefer is not conservative. He is like a moderate Republican who is trying to 
say that he is more conservative than he is. What what would be your response to that? Because I, I am almost sure that because you have a voting record and because you've said things as uh, running for elected office over the years that, you know, they're going to say that you're not as conservative as the as the other people in the race. Well, I, I hope we do get to talk about that because my record, look, I'm sure that, that there are other people in the race and I'm sure we'll talk about that, who we probably agree on a lot of things. But the difference is my record. So, for example, Article 1, Section 23 of the Missouri Constitution, which is your right to keep and bear arms under the Missouri Constitution. In 2014, I wrote new language for that provision. I passed it out of the legislature. I got it on the ballot and it passed by almost 70 percent. And that made Missouri one of the strong states in the country to protect your right to keep and bear arms. I balance is I was for six years. I was the chair of the Appropriations Committee writing the state budget. I cut over a billion dollars out of that budget in that time frame. Um, I defunded Planned Parenthood in that time frame, and I did it in such a way that the courts couldn't throw it out, which unfortunately no one's been able to to replicate that since. So my record is as conservative as you can get, and it's a record of accomplishments, not a record of just getting out on social media and talking about how conservative you are. The other thing that I think is going to be used against you is you have been lobbying in Missouri for a couple of years now, and typically lobbyists are seen as these evil boogeymen who are corrupting everything. What's going to be your response when, you know, people spend millions of dollars worth of ads pointing that out? So I've been a lawyer in Missouri for almost 30 years, and over 25 of that I have spent defending farmers and ranchers and businesses in courts throughout Missouri against plaintiff's lawyers, trying to take their away their living, trying to take their money, trying to take their property. And I'm proud of that. And in the legislature, I worked to protect those farmers and ranchers and other businesses. So after I left the legislature, if I've got to talk to legislators about those same issues that I talk about in the courtroom, that I talked about when I was in the legislature. If the law requires that I have to register as a lobbyist to do that, and my role as a lawyer defending those business entities, then that's what I've got to do. And I'm proud I'm proud of the work I've done in that regard. I've been doing it for over 25 years of protecting farmers and ranchers, and I'm going to continue to do it. So let's talk about a few issues that are top of mind right now. Um, I think the biggest one right now that is kind of in limbo is this foreign aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and and Taiwan. And one of the things I like to do with this is kind of break it up into three pieces because I'm a Missouri person. I I like Hammerschmidt. And uh, I think that that bill would have a difficult time being constitutional here. Let's start with Ukraine. Would you support sending more military aid to Ukraine if you were a member of the House right now? I think there's a balance there. And I think that and I've talked to Blaine about this. I mean, we have a place in the world that we have to be conscious of, that we are the shining beacon in the world. I mean, it's one reason we have a problem with the border is because people want to come into this country and we have a certain responsibility. But the flip side of that is you can't be held hostage when you've got a problem like the border, the southern border, where you've got over eight million people coming across that border undocumented in the last three years which is more than the population of 36 states, including the state of Missouri, then you can't be held hostage on things like foreign aid versus are we going to have border security? Joe Biden can control that border. He could close it today if he wanted to. And this concept that we have to, you know, we have to be held hostage for other things 
in order to control our own border and control crime in this country is ridiculous. And I dealt with those issues when I was in the General Assembly, where when we would write the state budget, people might try and hold one piece hostage in order to get something else. And I didn't do it because those pieces, as you said, they do need to be separate, whether it's a Hammerschmidt problem or anything else. And so, you know, I think that, that you have to evaluate what's appropriate to maintain our place in the world. But what you cannot do is get held hostage to protect the borders of Ukraine when we're not even spending money to protect our own damn borders. Mm -hmm. So if you were in a situation where you were not being held hostage and you could vote on both, like, how would you vote on on Ukraine spending right now? I think that Ukraine, in a lot of ways, is no different than other places in the world where we are, where we're threatened by China, we're threatened by Russia, and we need to make sure that we're doing those things as a measure of national security that we need to do. But you always have questions of accountability and waste and where that money's being spent. And I'll just tell you, frankly, I haven't seen a lot on that where there's a lot of accountability on what's already gone to Ukraine. I think we need to maintain our, our position in the world but we also don't need to waste U.S. taxpayer dollars, and we also don't need to be shoring up other people's borders when we're not protecting our own border. So, okay, going to Israel, Israel aid, and I'm I'm going to ask the same question I've asked to everybody on this point, because um, I don't think you've made that this exact point, but a lot of Republicans, like uh, Congressman Burleson, have said, "Well, I don't want to give money to Ukraine because they have." Uh, a track record of corruption, which is true. I'm not denying that. I mean, they have. There's lots of news articles about how that has the, the corruption has been maintained during this war. But then, how can you justify giving any military aid to Israel when the prime minister of Israel is literally on trial for corruption? Isn't that a contradictory type of policy position? You know, I think there's no doubt that Benjamin Netanyahu's got issues in Israel, but I think you still have to look at Remember, he's not the only one spending U.S. aid that's going to Israel. Do I think we need to support Israel? Absolutely, I think that. Should we be looking at the same accountability measures that we look for, whether it's Ukraine or anyone else? Absolutely, we should be doing that. And frankly, I think that actually the government's done a better job of keeping tabs on accountability for Israel, who I think has been much more careful in their spending than they have on Ukraine. But do I think we need to support Israel? Absolutely, I think we need to support Israel. I guess another question I've asked, too, is Israel is like the 25th biggest economy in the world. Like, why do we need to give them money to buy our weapons? Couldn't they just use their own money to buy our weapons? And They're not being invaded by Russia right now. They're clearly the more powerful actor in this conflict. Isn't it isn't it an isn't it a reasonable question to ask, like, why do they need this money when they could just pay for it themselves? Well, first of all, they're our only ally in the region and they are surrounded by countries that want to kill them every day. Countries that are hostile to the United States. They are not our allies in that part of the country. So do we need to do certain things, as I said previously, to maintain our position in, in, in the world and being a partner of Israel, being part of that? Absolutely is part of that. Because they are our ally, and they prove that over and over again. But again, they are our only ally. And when you look at Western civilization and Western culture, which we try to show the world is the way civilization should exist, Israel is our partner in that. They're the only one in the Middle East 
that has a culture similar to ours and promotes those democratic values. So, yes. Do, are there things that we need to do to be supporting Israel? Yes. OK, going to immigration, you've probably seen some comments from some House members that explicitly said, I don't want to vote on anything regarding immigration because I want it to be an issue in the election that helps Donald Trump. Do you think that that's the right type of posture for I'm not saying all Republicans are saying that, by the way, but some have said that openly. And from the outside looking in, that seems pretty cynical. Like, do you think that's the wrong type of thing for Republicans, especially in the House, to be doing when, as you mentioned, there is a palpable crisis at the border that is affecting pretty much every part of the country? Let me tell you what's cynical. And what's cynical is the fact that you look at situations like what happened to the University of Georgia with a student being murdered by somebody who never should have been in the country and then was let go multiple times by law enforcement in other parts of the country before that occurred. And now we've got another story in the paper today where you've got another person who was not vetted, led into the country, arrested, let go, and then killed a two-year-old. And I think the cynical part is why are Democrats letting this happen? Because those are things, they own this. The crisis at the border is owned by Democrats. But the question is, why would they accept these things like that that are happening? And as tragic and it is awful, as awful as they are, that's acceptable to them because of the bigger picture of letting in over 8 million people who are going to blue states and blue cities that are losing population so that when they do the next census, because remember, when they do the census, they don't count citizens, they count people. So those people count. So you're adding more than the entire population of the state of Missouri to some of those places so that when they do that, those places have larger populations. They get more representation in Congress and they get a better position in presidential races for Democrats. It is an objective to have a single party Democrat system and it's all part of the design. And what I think is unacceptably cynical is accepting the deaths of kids in this country, whether through fentanyl or direct murder of kids, as we're seeing almost on a daily basis now, to say that you get a better footing in politics. But that is what Democrats are doing to create a one-party system. Uh, I've asked this before to other candidates, too. But does any sort of immigration, uh, like, like global immigration policy, have to also deal with some of the economic calamities in the countries where people are coming from? And I... I understand that like America doesn't have enough money to say fix the economy of Venezuela or El Salvador or whatever. But it seems like the reason people are coming to the country is because of like real economic and political crises in Latin America. And it seems like it's going to continue if those countries are still un unstable. Like, is that part of the conversation, too, or is it just enforcement in your view? Well, there's no doubt that people come to this country because they want a better future. And so as down as some people may be on the United States, it still shows it's, it's a great argument of why we are the best country in the world, because people want to come here for a brighter future. And we have always that my, you know, my German relatives that came here, you know, wanted the same thing. But when my German relatives came here, they had to go through, uh, you know, the whole process of being vetted and found out who they were and you know, whether or not they were going to be let into the country. And I think that's always the process that we've had that's worked. And so, yes, I mean, people want to come from other countries that are not in as good of a position, you know, for whatever reason, economically, politically. 
But you can't. It doesn't mean that we destroy our economy and kill our kids by saying we need to take everybody who comes from a country that's not as as good as the United States. And it's simply not acceptable. That process has to be restored where we know who's coming in. And, 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 you know, again, there are hardworking people and people that want a better life. And that's great. They should have that opportunity. But they should never have the opportunity to simply sneak in and, and come across and we don't know what they're doing or carry illegal drugs into the country or, frankly, have much more nefarious purposes, whether in terms of terrorism and other things, simply because we think it's a good idea to have an open border. It is not a good idea to let anyone into the country without vetting who they are. You mentioned before that you were the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, I think for six years. Yeah, that's- I'm sick and- Six years, yeah, which actually, as far as we can tell, is a record for even before term limits, how somebody uh, how long somebody did that job. Would you want to be appointed to like a House budget related committee or like the Ways and Means Committee, given that you have a lot of experience in that uh, sort of arena? Are there other committee? I understand you have to win first, and I understand that like getting appointed to committees talking about this now is is kind of premature but i am asking all the candidates like what sort of focuses would you like to have uh beyond sort of the hot button top of mind issues in terms of committees well there's there's no doubt that that having you know written you know at that time it was just under a 30 billion dollar budget for the entire state of missouri for six years in a row that's a level of experience in in dealing with taxpayer dollars uh and revenue and, and how budgets work that's a level of experience that not a lot of people have. And, and I would you know, be honored to use that experience any way I can. But I will tell you this, in addition to the, you know, the agricultural work uh, that I have done, you know, defending farmers and ranchers over the last you know, over 25 years, um, a lot of the work that I do as a lawyer is in the energy field. And so energy policy, I think, is also going to be one of the biggest uh, issues that the country deals with for at least the next decade, probably the next two decades, because we've got an antiquated grid system that number one needs to be updated. And also it simply cannot handle the volume of electricity. And we all know demand for electricity is going up and the nature of how that electricity is supplied is changing. And these are national questions. They certainly you know, impact individual states, but how that policy is going to be developed you know, in the best way to provide safe and reliable service at a, at a cost that people can afford, which is a huge issue right now with some of the policy that people simply can't afford it. You know, that's something that I've worked on for years as a lawyer. And, and that's that is a space that uh, when I go to D.C., um, I, I want to work in that space because I have very strong feelings on what I think that policy should be. I'm looking at the secretary of state's website at 925 a.m. on Wednesday, February 28th. There are eight candidates, including yourself in this race, including several uh, who have the ability to self-fund, our current elected officials. Um, where where do you kind of think that your advantages are in a crowded primary in a district that is fairly unusual geographically? It's mid-Missouri-based and St. Louis suburbs-based. Why do you think that you're going to be able to have an advantage over the other people who end up running? So so first of all, the way that the third congressional district is drawn, I mean, it really is a mid-Missouri district, which is where my Senate district was. And 
And, you know, where I've, I've had people encouraging me to get back into, you know, the public sector for, for a long time to get some of these things done. So I think the geography uh, is beneficial. Um, I mean, I, there's people in, I actually live in the third congressional district. You know, some of those people who filed yesterday, I have no idea who they are. Others, you know, I've known for years, including people that that don't live in the third congressional district. And obviously, constitutionally, that's not a requirement that you live in the district. But I think if you're going to run to represent people of a congressional district, you should actually be one of those people. Um, and, and I know I can say that I am. Uh, I don't think everyone in this race uh, can say that. I do think you're right, though. It's, it's going to be an expensive race, as, as many of these races are. That's the unfortunate side of it. But I think in this cycle where you've got a governor's race, you've got a lot of down ticket races, you know, there's going to be a lot of messages out there that, you know, people are going to be saturated with information. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult uh, to, to get your message out. But I believe with the experience I've got, you know, I, I can certainly do that. But, you know, I, I think my record uh, and I think geographically uh, I, I am the right candidate that fits the district. And I think there are other people in this race that, frankly, just don't fit it. Do you think that have you talked with Congressman Luke DeMeyer about him possibly endorsing you? I mean, I should probably ask him myself. But, you know, I mentioned on the outset that there is an existing relationship there. Anybody who went through the 2008 election cycle uh, never forgets it because it was such a memorable election cycle. Um, what do you think the possibility is of him possibly endorsing you or any other candidate? I think I think that Blaine has done a great job for the district. I certainly hope that he uh, will endorse me, uh, but that's that's something you might need to ask him. How much do you think um, the presidential race is going to play in this contest? Obviously. This is it's not like 2008 where the general is going to be competitive. Like, I haven't found a single person who feels like the Democrat has a chance here. Do, do you think that enthusiasm among Republicans about Trump being the nominee again is going to be a factor in this contest? Or since it's going to be decided in August and not the November general election, it's really going to be more about localized issues rather than, you know, Trump versus Biden, so to speak. I think that everyone is disappointed with President Biden's border policy, law enforcement policy, economic policy. Do I think that that disappointment helps me? Yes, I do. You can read and listen to all of our coverage of the race to succeed retiring Congressman Blaine Luke DeMeyer by going to stlpr.org. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening. Politically Speaking is produced by Sarah Kellogg, Rachel Lipman, and me, Jason Rosenbaum. The show is edited by Fred Ehrlich. Read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking by searching the term Politically Speaking on Apple Podcasts. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.